It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Samir Rahim. In the latest issue of Prospect, I've written an essay evaluating the life and work of Edward Said, the late public intellectual, most famous for his book Orientalism, published in 1978, is a widely celebrated and extremely influential thinker, particularly in the realm of post-colonial studies. But as I reread his work, I found that we too often skip over his contradictions, um, his flaws, which I believe have their origin in his life story. Um, I'm joined by the academic David Herman, who was taught by Said at Columbia, and who wrote a long essay about Said for Prospect in 2003, shortly after his death. We're talking about the new biography of Said, Places of Mind by Timothy Brennan, what we often get wrong about Orientalism, and what Said would have made of the latest Israel-Palestine conflict that has recently swept global headlines. Edward Said was a Palestinian-American intellectual who died in 2003. And I wrote a piece about Edward in this uh, current issue of Prospect, quite a critical piece, uh, which we'll come on to. And the biography is written by one of Said's former students, Timothy Brennan. And I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by another of his former students, the equally distinguished David Herman, who wrote a long piece for Prospect on Said in 2003, which I think it's fair to say is perhaps a bit more balanced and definitely brings out his positive sides as well as David's own critiques of him. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Samir. Lovely to be with you. He's a fascinating figure, Said. He's one of the most influential post-war intellectuals, I think it's fair to say. But in the 20 or so years since he's died, how do you think his reputation has fared? I think it's done okay. Post-colonialism, post-colonialist criticism has obviously done extremely well. And he was a key, key figure, largely thanks to his book Orientalism, uh, which came out in 1978. And I I think think he's done okay. I, I slightly worry that some of his followers are less balanced, perhaps, than he is. And that includes this new biography by Tim Brennan. Said himself, I think, was much more secular, cosmopolitan, eclectic in his interests, I think, than some of his followers have turned out to be. And of course, later, I mean, 
after he wrote Orientalism, he did really start to critique the people who were following him quite quickly. He was one of those people who, who took on an idea, ran with it, and then sort of dropped it. Yes, and I, I, his career is really made up of a whole number of stages. And people, many of his followers, have tended to emphasise one stage in particular, the post-colonialist criticism, or also perhaps his brief infatuation, relatively brief infatuation with French literary theory. But I think his career was more complicated than that. I think he was more complicated than that. And uh, and there's one or two moments when Brennan does sort of hint at that in his biography, particularly towards the end. But otherwise, I think is sometimes too biased in favour of one or two particular stages of Said's career. Yes, he's very keen on the sort of the radical Said, isn't he? There's a little anecdote at the beginning where he says, I think one of the earliest times he he encountered Said, he'd just written something in uh, the Columbia newspaper denouncing Reagan, and there's a sort of Said gives him a sort of fist fist bump or fist salute across the uh, across the, the corridor or, or or in the grounds or something, and that sort of sets the tenor for the book, doesn't it? I think that's right. And in fact, right from the very beginning, from the dedication for the Palestinian people. Well, of course, Said's Palestinian politics were hugely important, but so were all kinds of other themes and issues. And there is this extraordinary moment at the end of his career, at the end of his life, sadly, in 2000, when he's interviewed by an Israeli journalist. uh, And he says, I'm the last Jewish intellectual. And it's an extraordinary thing for a Palestinian intellectual, possibly the greatest of all Palestinian intellectuals, to say. And I think it's worth kind of exploring what he might have meant by that, because it is a really interesting moment. Yeah, what did he, what is one of his most famous sayings, I'm not sure at point where the paradoxes, which I sort of point out in my review, I mean, that's a genuinely quite fruitful and interesting paradox. What do you think he really meant by that? Well, I think it's easy to forget how very interested he was and increasingly interested in the last five or six years of his life in a particular group of German-speaking Jewish intellectuals, which included Freud, it included in particular Adorno, it included the young Lukács, uh, and that these became really important to him, partly because they were like him, all exiles or refugees, and they were all on the left, like him. Some of them were very interested in music, Adorno in particular, who became very influential on his latest writings, last writings. Freud was very important to him. Uh, and those suddenly sort of really took off as interests uh, in, in, his, in his later years. Yes, those are intellectual interests. I mean, for those who don't know him so well, perhaps I'll just do a little bit of biography, which you can sort of fill in as, as we go along. One of the striking things in the first line of the biography is that Saeed was born in Jerusalem in 1935, delivered by a Jewish midwife. Already you're in a world that is mixed and a different one to one to perhaps than perhaps we're used to hearing about. I mean, he was mainly raised in Cairo, and there's some sort of people have disagreements over um, his background, but really he was, he was a Palestinian who, who even admitted Jerusalem wasn't really his, his, his home, but it was his homeland. Um, but, but Cairo was really where he brought up, and it's extraordinarily sort of privileged environment where he would be attending the Khadival Opera House by the age of 11, was um, Baby Grand from Leipzig was brought in for him to play the piano. He was taught by um, a Polish Jewish emigre music teacher, Ignaz Tigerman, um, and he didn't seem to be very fond of Arabic culture or, or, or music. And in fact, you know, when he attended VC, Victoria College in 
in Cairo, which is known as sort of the Eton of the Middle East. I don't think, I think they were banned from speaking Arabic. So all the sort of ingredients of this Western culture forming this individual, uh, which he was then later to sort of throw off, are all all in the mix there already, aren't they? They are. And you're right, this is a hugely controversial issue uh, in his fantastic and very moving memoir, Out of Place, which came out uh, in the late 1990s. Uh, He emphasizes how much his roots were really in Jerusalem and that his family were refugees. And this became a really much debated issue. And Tim Brennan, for someone whose book is at times almost hagiographical, I really expected that he would take some of these criticisms very much, that he would take them on and that he would really argue and refute them. And to to my surprise, there's surprisingly little about this. And he himself is rather vague about Said's actual background. He's he, he's not terribly specific at crucial moments. So it's uh, so th- for those people who are interested in that particular issue, I think the book is disappointing. Yes, and uh, he, he, again, but Said in the book, as I found many a time, the, the, the times that I sort of criticise him or critique him, often he's often done it himself. Uh, better, and he says that he wasn't—he wasn't really a refugee. The, the founding uh, of Israel in 1947 was—it it took away one of the family homes, but he was in Egypt at the time. Now it was a psychological blow, and as it was to a lot of people, uh, Arabs in the Arab world, and I'm sure it was also something very personal to him as well. Um, it doesn't seem to have really hit home until he moved to America and after the Six Day War in 1967 and the death of his father in, in, in 71. That's when he seemed to have really had a sort of nationalistic awake. I think you're absolutely right. Six, those two moments, 67 with the Six Day War and the death of his father just four years later, because his father, let us not forget, was an American citizen who had spent some time in America, had served for the, with the American army during the First World War, and I think was actually much less political than either Said or one of Said's sisters. And I think his death was quite, also quite significant. And again, I don't think Tim Brennan gives that really enough uh, space in the book. And it features his father's life and his father's character features very strongly in Said's own memoir. He was a very important man to him. Yes. And then eventually he, you know, he, he came to write this, this game-changing book, Orientalism, uh, in, in 1978. And it's been so, so influential. You know, let's sort of think about what, what did Orientalism actually say? And does it still have relevance today? It certainly has relevance today. I think the timing was absolutely crucial. Here was a a book by a leading, leading American literary critic. And let's not forget that really from the late 1960s, Said was one of the most, already one of the most influential literary critics in America. Not yet, his influence hadn't been felt so much in Britain by then. Orientalism really was the breakthrough book for a British audience, Uh, but he he was well known in the States. And then he comes out with this book, which opens up a whole new cultural landscape of the way in which people in the West, intellectuals, writers, philologists, had depicted and represented the Middle East in particular. And it really did open up a whole cultural landscape. And I think the influence here of Gramsci was extraordinarily important, the Italian Marxist, um, as much as uh, Michel Foucault, the French theorist. Uh, These were two hugely important 
influences uh, on, on Orientalism. And I think for a whole generation, perhaps two generations, of literary and cultural critics uh, from outside uh, Europe or America, uh, this book had an enormous, enormous impact. So Orientalism argues that Western descriptions of the East, um, sometimes it goes back all the way to Aeschylus as the Persians, but it really sort of starts in 1798 with Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. The Western descriptions of the Orient are inevitably coloured by the power relations between the people doing the describing and the described, i.e. it can not actually be scholarship, it can only be a, a variety of propaganda. Um, and he sees this as not only a, a sort of a vein running through a few writers, but all Western writers. And I suppose when I read it, first read it, I think I was in my early 20s, it was a kind of a revelation to me because it gave you a very powerful handle to take hold of the bundle, as William Emerson says somewhere. It gives you a way of thinking about why is it that when you read novels or travelogues about the East or the Middle East or the Orient, the natives always seem to be these sideline characters or stereotypical or, 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 what, or what have you. But for me, rereading the book, and I suppose I've had 20 years of you know, reading other stuff as well in between, there just seem to be so many gaps in the argument and so many rhetorical ploys. I think at one point he says that one scholar ransacks the archives, but actually all he means is consult them. He doesn't mean steal them or anything. And you know, he, he leaves out German Orientalism. He leaves out figures like uh, Franz Rosenthal, who was a great German-Jewish Orientalist who fled the Nazis, lived in America, and translated Ibn Khaldun in the 1950s. And if you do read his work, the idea that he sort of didn't respect the culture he was writing about seems quite silly, really. And for me, reading the biography, my own take was... It really hit me when I realised what Said's father's profession was, which was he uh, ran a stationary business which supplied the occupying British army with paper, the paper that they wrote their imperial reports on. There's this sense of complicity and knowledge and dominance that Said, as a, as a Christian, an Anglican Christian in the Middle East, surrounded by a, a culture which is similar to his own but not quite his own, and feelings of sort of guilt and inauthenticity, um, which he sort of channels, and he's quite explicit about this, the personal aspect of it, he channels in Orientalism. But I think he sort of cooks the books. I think he doesn't sort of, he doesn't really offer, he offers suggestive ideas, but the comprehensive nature of it imprisons, I think, um, the objects of culture that he's writing about. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think also we shouldn't forget what a very controversial book it was at the time. Yes, it spoke to a young generation of literary critics. Yes, it spoke to a lot of, a whole new generation of young intellectuals from all around the world, because it basically took this thesis that knowledge is not disinterested, that intellectuals are not politically neutral, that their work has a political function, that there are issues of control and representation at the heart of what they're, what they're doing, that knowledge is never disinterested. And at the time, of course, people who were themselves professional uh, Orientalists, like Bernard Lewis at Harvard, like Robert Irwin, uh, said this is just nonsense that, in, in your words, he was cooking the books, that he wasn't including 
the German tradition of Orientalists, the Russian tradition of Orientalists, that he was focusing far too much on the British and the French because they had imperial interests in the Middle East. And therefore, he could make a kind of link between those imperial interests and uh, the kind of intellectual work these other people were doing, which of course makes more sense, whereas the Germans had no such empire in, in Syria, Jordan, and, and therefore that, that, that didn't work as well. Christopher Hitchens pointed this out some, some years later when they sort of parted ways. And it's again interesting looking at Tim, Timothy Brennan's biography, that again you expect him to take a sort of, to stand up for Said and, and take on some of these critics there's very little actually about, surprisingly, about people like Irwin, about people like Bernard Lewis, these well-known Orientalists. Bernard Lewis wrote a seven and a half thousand word essay, viciously attacking Said in the New York Review of Books. And you'd think that if you're going to write a kind of hagiography, you're going to take that up and sort of take that on and sort of stand up for Said in a way that, uh, that Brennan actually doesn't do, which is curious. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I think there's a reason for that, David, because... In the post-colonial circles in which uh, Brennan moves, to even acknowledge Bernard Lewis as someone who's worthy of being opposed is, you know, he's much more interested in spending five or six pages on whether Said was really a Marxist, you know, the interest sort of left-wing debates. By the way, he wasn't, I don't think. And in fact, explicitly when he talks about culture, as he reverses base and superstructure, and he basically says the novels come first, then the empire. Um, rather than culture being, as it were, a sort of product of um, the economic conditions of society. So I think that's the, that's the reason for that. And also he does, the funny thing is that he does admit, he does say Saeed, he quoted uh, Brennan here, Saeed's overstatements were designed to unleash a purifying indignation in his readers. He felt he had to be strong and definite for political reasons. I think he thinks that's something to praise Saeed for. Well, so I just think that undermines your own argument. And the other peculiar thing is that Probably Said's greatest legacy, as we now look back, was on post-colonialist thinking 
And yet there is remarkably little in Brennan's book uh, about some of the leading post-colonial historians, the subaltern studies group, some of the great writers, some of the great intellectuals, even sort of Fanon, and even Salman Rushdie, who wrote a lot about Said, who interviewed Said, who reviewed Said, and Said wrote, co-signed co a very important letter to the New York Review of Books at the time of the fatwa, defending Rushdie at the time of the satanic verse is. And there's no reference to it at all in the book. And yeah, the Rushdie thing is, I found so fascinating, because Brennan himself has wrote a thesis on Rushdie, supervised by Said. And again, but I think it's again to do with the fact that Rushdie is now somehow regarded as being sort of beyond the pale in post-colonial circles. But I think it's also because the Rushdie issue really gets to, for me, the nub and the heart of what Said missed and what... So... So the Satanic Verses, Rushdie and Said were friends before it was published, and Said went to uh, Rushdie's house uh, in Islington. It was 4th of July, and apparently they had fireworks in the, uh, in the garden. And uh, Rushdie gave him a, a typescript of Satanic Verses and asked him to read it, and he said, you know, the Muslims aren't going to be very happy with this. And uh, Said read it, and, you know, he realised that was going to be the case. And obviously, as you said, he then did defend Rushdie uh, and his right to free speech and, and that we can, we can all sort of admire him for. But Rushdie's own book, The Satanic Verses, draws a lot on the Orientalist biographies of the Prophet Muhammad from the 19th century, to the extent that the phrase, the Satanic Verses, actually comes from William Muir's biography in the 1860s, a biography that Said in Orientalism excoriates for putting across these sort of stereotype pictures of the prophet as a libertine and a liar and, and all these and all these other things. Now, unpicking all this is, is is quite difficult, but I think in a way Said might have had a sort of shock of recognition when he read Rushdie's novel. And I wonder whether when European Orientalists were presenting stereotyped views of the prophet or distorted versions of the prophet why it was any different when Rushdie was doing it. Is it because Rushdie was from a Muslim background? Anyway, there was a lot to tease out there, let's put it that way. Um, and I don't think Said ever really got to, got to grips with it. In his afterword to Orientalism in, I think, 95, he said, well, some Muslim readers have taken Orientalism as a way of just merely dismissing all Western scholarship. And I, that, doesn't, that isn't what I meant at all. I was like, well, I've just read the book again. I think that kind of is what you meant. So, uh, and, and, and there's an interesting story actually about the influence of Said in Muslim and Arab circles and actually in, for example, the, re the sort of rejection in some circles of Western scholarship on the Quran and Western scholarship discussing new theories of the origins of Islam based on, you know, the term you can just say, well, that's just Orientalist scholarship. You know, we can just dismiss that because it's produced by a Westerner. Um, and again, I think Said was so tied himself in knots about these things because he, he was funny enough, he was regarded as in some ways as a sort of defender of Islam against the West. But the thing is, he didn't actually know very much about Islam or research much in the languages or have much of a sense of um, the scholarship that was going on. And I think that's, 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 and that's not really a way to look at him. He definitely was, as you say, very much a secular intellectual. And there's also this, this whole issue of the satanic verses and the fatwa raised a huge question for Said and uh, also raises a big question for Tim Brennan, which is, what do you do with 
the dark side of, of the contemporary Muslim world. And Saeed, I think, was actually clearer in his own mind that you stand up for democracy, you stand up for secularism, uh, you, you do not turn a, a, a blind eye to the faults and failings of dictatorships which were homophobic and so on and so on and so forth. Brennan has a much harder time except right at the very end. And I think the last page of the book is perhaps the most interesting in the entire book, when he talks about Saeed's wish to be buried in Palestine, but the family decide that they won't do that because of the risk of the grave being desecrated. And they don't mean desecrated by Jewish fanatics or Jewish settlers or Mossad. They mean desecrated by Palestinians who have not forgiven Saeed for being a relative moderate. And so he is buried in Lebanon. And I think that's a fascinating moment. And Tim, I, I wish Brennan had perhaps raised it earlier and addressed the implications of that for Saeed's position as an outsider within the Palestinian movement, that his books were not sold within the Palestinian Authority, that after his falling out with Arafat over the Oslo Accords, he became persona non grata within the Palestinian movement. And that some of the most interesting criticisms, and this is one of the best moments, I think, in Brennan's book, some of the most interesting criticisms of Orientalism actually come from Arab Marxists. Absolutely, yes. And it's interesting, going thinking about um, Said's relationship with the Palestinian movement. I mean, it's so fascinating that, you know, he, he wrote, as Brennan says, he, you know, he wrote part of the Arafat speech in 74, you know, the famous line about offering the gun and the, the olive branch. And he also, you know, he advised Arafat. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great bit when he tries to get Arafat to sort of clean up his act, you know, to sort of make him look smarter. You know, he should have a shave, you know, dress in a proper suit, get rid of the scarf, the kafir, uh, uh, and make him a sort of respectable person. But, but more seriously, he did add, act as an interlocutor, for example, with George Shultz, the American Secretary of State, and he was instrumental in getting the PLO to accept a, a two-state two -state solution. Yes, which is sort of interesting in that we're speaking at the time of, uh, of um, yet sadly, yet another terrible conflict uh, between Israel and, and Hamas. And uh, it is interesting that the whole debates about a two-state solution, a one-state solution, have never been more, more topical. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, I think there's a sense, I don't know whether you share this, that at the end of Saeed's life, there is a sense of his isolation and his pessimism. And maybe that's what, just going back to these German Jewish intellectuals again for one moment, maybe that's what they represented for him. This sense of the young Lukash in exile in Moscow, Auerbach, who was a hugely important figure for Said as an intellectual father figure in exile in Istanbul and then later in America, uh, and that he saw something about their plight, their predicament, trying to wave the flag for a certain kind of humanism at a time of terrible political extremism, which had put their own lives in, in, in peril and in danger. And whether he saw Perhaps there was something about that predicament that spoke to him. I think that once he broke with Arafat in 93 over the Oslo Accords and started attacking him, um, he then had to have, he had to have bodyguards, uh, I believe, because um, there were sort of dangers to him, dangers to his life after that. 
I think after he stopped being so involved with the day-to-day reality of helping negotiations and being a sort of PLO, not quite representative, but sort of go-between, as it were, it allowed him to think a bit more imaginatively and perhaps a bit more, think bigger about what it might mean for this these two sets of people to live together. And whether whether it sounds hopelessly naive or not but certainly i think watching the news uh, right now and the the appalling uh, conflict and deaths that are happening in the middle east you know ideas of coexistence or living in one state together do seem naive but perhaps the job of an intellectual is to put forward a naive argument or put forward an argument that maybe perhaps be realized in 50 or 100 years time or to put something in the in in the water as it were and i think not only his abdication of um, you know uh, a one state, but also the 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 orchestra he set up with Daniel Barenboim, West Eastern Divan Orchestra, which allowed Jews and uh, uh, Arabs, including Palestinians, to play together, play music together. Music, of course, a great passion of uh, Saeed's, with no necessity of political discussion. I think that was the key thing. No one would have to talk about anything; they would just simply play the music. And as a metaphor of what is possible to be done when political um, problems are solved, when political problems are put to one side, I think it's kind of a beautiful memorial um, to him. And I think that um, is, is, is a very moving moment um, when he, when he sets, that, set up, sets up that orchestra, I think. I couldn't agree more. And Baron Boyne, another Jewish emigre, but... Uh, the importance of Baron Boyne as a musician, they not only created and ran this orchestra together. They also uh, wrote books together. And Baron Boyne was hugely important to, to Saeed at the end of his life. And in a way, one could perhaps see Saeed coming full circle. You mentioned the piano from Leipzig. You mentioned the, the Central European Jewish piano teacher in Cairo. Um, and uh, there's a sort of sense in which Said sort of started with that in a somewhat apolitical life and world, which was dedicated to music and then later to literature. And then at the end, he comes back to music. And it is impossible to overestimate the importance, I think, of of music and writing about music to Said. He wrote a column for The Nation about just specifically about music, just about music. It's impossible to overestimate how important this was for him right at the end of his life, I think. And it's again interesting if you look at the canon that he writes about uh, of composers, it's the great German Central European tradition of Bach and Beethoven. He was a huge Glenn Gould fan, of course, um, of Beethoven, of Schubert. It's not Arab music. It's not post-colonial music that he's interested in. It's the great European canon of classical music. And I suppose his role as a Western intellectual explaining, giving the other side of the story, as it were, to the West um, is really also important as well. I mean, whenever there were conflicts, you know, the civil war in Lebanon or what was going on in uh, the First Intifada, the fact that Said was there and able to articulate in in extremely um, non-hysterical, extremely factual terms the Palestinian side of the story and why these things might be happening, um, whilst at the same time not being someone who was, you know, he had no sort of 
sympathy really for violent activities or terrorism he was too much of an intellectual for that 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 voice who was able to be very very sort of firm in support of his people but at the same time balance it with um, recognition of the other side's story is a voice that we do seem to lack today frankly Absolutely. And that also adds to, I think, the tragic sense of Said at the end of his life. Because you do wonder, you know, he gave the Reef Lectures in the early 90s called The Representations of the Intellectual. And you do wonder whether right at the end, he's not the last Jewish intellectual, he's the last oppositional intellectual. He's the last of that extraordinary tradition that goes back to Orwell and Chomsky and Fanon and all the all these other people which ran through the 20th century back to Zola and Jacques and Bender in the Traison des Clercs and he goes back to that tradition he's part of that tradition and saw himself as part of that tradition and then at the end you do wonder actually is there anybody else like him to come afterwards and indeed was he the last of that kind of intellectual not necessarily the last Jewish intellectual but the last great oppositional intellectual, political, engagé, a public intellectual, who was both incredibly well-read, but also wide-ranging in his interests. He wrote about everything from belly dancers in Cairo and Tarzan films to George Orwell and V.S. Naipaul and Conrad and so on and so forth. And also had this huge political dimension as well to his career. And you just wonder whether he is really the last of those, of those great figures. Well, on that note, and on that tribute to uh, Said, I think we have to end it there. David, thank you so much. Samir, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for your time. And that's all from us. Thanks so much for joining us this week. You can find my essay, which is called Disorientated, in the latest issue of Prospect, which is now out on newsstands and also on our website. Next week, the editor Tom Clark will return with journalist Zoe Williams to talk about the rise of the British shock jock. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.